there's like a deeper meaning behind all of this. Like it's, it's how you were raised, what you were taught, what you were conditioned to believe. This is the Desi Condition. Hi, Bandhus. Welcome back to the Desi Condition. My name is Thunashree and I am your host. To start today's episode, I want you to think about the relationship that you have with your family versus the relationship you think you should have with your family. If you're a male identifying person, perhaps try and imagine what it might look like for you to be a female identifying person. You think that you might be treated the same. Or do you think that you would have achieved what you have been able to achieve at this point? Or maybe you're a female identifying person with a male identifying brother. Is he treated differently than you? Is he given more privileges than you? And how do you think South Asian culture has played a role in this? And moreover, how do you think your family's influence and treatment of you has shaped who you are and what opportunities you've gotten in your life? While we're constantly told that our families simply want what is best for us, that doesn't mean we always get what is best for us. Particularly with South Asian families, family pressure can prove to reach a yielding point for some people and result in some serious drama. For some people, this clash can result in an identity crisis, your standard confusion in regards to career or the company that you keep, or maybe even your relationships. And while that's important to address, and we have addressed those things in the past, today I want us to think about the other possibility that that clash sometimes results in, one that's a result of anger, power, and even narcissism, abuse. Particularly when it comes to women. The desire to control the fate of women is not just in the past, it's today. Women are still controlled by their families and societal pressures. There are laws that try to control women's bodies, and there are major gaps in access that women have to careers, salary, rights, and equality. Some might say that this is a result of patriarchal culture. Some say it's something to do with British colonialism. Others may think it goes even farther back than that. Maybe all of those things are true. Whatever it is, we'll talk about what women's suppression is using an example of family abuse. So women's suppression is ubiquitous in our culture and very complicated. So to help us understand how women can achieve their full potential and freedom, I have brought in speaker, psychotherapist, and author Maitri Meliana. So Maitri runs workshops for women who desire to heal from trauma and liberate themselves from patriarchal standards and expectations and live their most inspired lives to their fullest potential. She is an author of Brownson Girl, an Indian-American woman's magical journey from broken to beautiful, which is a memoir in which she recounts her lived experiences trying to create her own destiny in the midst of her family who tries to decide her fate for her. I'm not going to read the entire description of the book because you can check that up for yourself, but I'm just going to read an excerpt of it because I think it's very beautifully written. It says, This searing, sensual memoir by an award-winning writer is about how family loves and wounds each other, about how immigrants are torn between cultures, and about leaving everything to find yourself. At times heartbreaking, at times triumphant, Brown Skin Girl is a testament to freedom, love, and the magic that finds you when you follow your heart. So, Maitre, thank you very much for joining us today. I would love for you to start off by just introducing yourself and adding anything to my very brief description of you that I may have missed. Thanks so much, Tanushree, and thank you for having me on The Daisy Condition. It's wonderful to be here with you. Um, <clears throat> so, I'm an Indian-American 
Uh, my family immigrated to the U.S. when I was 16, and I have I then spent some years in India after that, which we, I know we'll get into. Um, I became a psychotherapist uh, around 39-40, when I was 39-40, and uh, it was a it was an incredible time for me of really evaluating my Indian culture, my Indian family, Indian religion, the whole kit and caboodle of my identity, and embarking on a deep journey of personal healing. And it was, it's been a remarkable journey for me. I learned a lot. I've grown a lot. I've healed a lot. And I bring all that I've learned and share and uh, discovered for myself to my work with women. So I help women heal from trauma, detox from patriarchy, and help them find their voice, their truth, their power, their sexuality, their identity, and connect with the sacred within them. So that's my work. Um, starting out as a psychotherapist, but now I have grown into teaching groups and workshops. So that's what I do right now. <laughs> Great. So you mentioned last time that we spoke that it stems from a particular experience that you had from family abuse, if I'm not mistaken, and that yes. that comes up in your book, right? So I'm mm -hmm. curious to hear from you what family abuse looks like for you. Yeah, so it can be it can be many things, um, and I will. I just want to preface it by saying that in India, mental health is 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 very very new, if at all known about. <clears throat> and our parents, our grandparents, this was not part of their culture. And having come to the West um, or Im imbibing Western values, we learn about psychology, which is a Western science and art. Um, so in India, abuse is very common. Children, children are beaten, children are shamed, children are emotionally abused, and that's considered normal parenting. And it's, it's very harmful for a child to be, to be shamed, to be uh, beaten, um, to, be, to be controlled by fear, guilt, and shame as opposed to love, acceptance, and encouragement, and understanding. So that alone itself, depending on how the family is, wherever the family is, is abuse. Uh, we typically think of abuse as being physical, but emotional abuse is just as powerful. We just don't see the scars, the marks, the wounds. But the internal experience is very much the same. Um, so for me, um, I grew up thinking that my growing up was normal. I was beaten, I was scolded, I was shamed. Um, and I, was, I grew up in a, an atmosphere of fear and control, not just the family, but I think the cultural approach to women is to control, right? To, to police, to control, to, and, and it's put under the guise of protection, which to a certain degree is true because there is so much patriarchal and patriarchal dangers in day-to-day -day life for girls and young women. But, um, you know, I think it's got become embedded in the, in the Indian psyche that uh, controlling women is protection as opposed to teaching us how to be strong and how to trust ourselves and how to weather and face um, challenges. Um, 
I, my experience uh, after I moved here, I, I moved here at 16. I was in graduate school, and at uh, 22, I fell in love with an American man. And we were together for a year and a half. And my parents found out uh, one summer when I was visiting them. And there was an immediate family intervention. Two aunts flew in from different parts of the country. Uh, they sat me down, asked you know, if I was sexual with this person. And I, I just owned it because I wanted to live my life and break away from the family. But overnight, um, the very next day, they said, well, my mother said, well, you're going back to India for three months. And if you do that, we'll allow you to be with him. And it was such a shock. And I think being in my parents' home, apart away from my free zone, which was at school, I couldn't think. And I was filled with shame and fear. And I was brought up to obey. So I didn't even think I had a choice. Um, so the next day we flew back to India. And once I was there, my mother said, you're never returning. My mother went with me and essentially, essentially placed me under house arrest in my grandparents' four-room cottage for a year. So there was no internet at the time. This was in the 80s. And uh, I couldn't... Somebody ran to the phone anytime it rang. I wasn't allowed to get mail. I couldn't leave the house apart from the garden. And um, there, were, there was a guard outside. And, you know, at that time, I knew, I knew my place as a 20-year-old, even though in America you're a, you're a free adult. But in India, as a, at that time, as a 22-year-old, if I went to the police, they would bring me back to my family because that's the understanding. The family owns a woman until she's married and then probably the husband owns her. But, um, so, and I, and I did I my passport, my wallet, my dress book, everything. I was stripped. I was stripped of every right. I was stripped of every power of, of every, um, anything that I could say is me. Um, and I knew if I left, I'd be, just be raped. It'd be foolish to do that. So it was, extraordinarily difficult period, as you can imagine. Um, I tried to commit suicide. I thought about committing suicide. I came very, very close, but didn't. Um, it, and it was a year of tremendous uh, damage. They also took me to a Swami, and I will name him, Swami Chinmayananda, um, who asked me to travel with him for six weeks, <clears throat> which I did. Um, I didn't know why, but it was, it, for, for me, I thought, okay, at least I'll be outside the house. I wasn't even allowed to say yes or no. It was just, she's going to come with me. And he proceeded to publicly shame me, demoralize me, persecute me, molest me, and um, what I would call at the time broke my spirit. Um, I was terrified because he was supposed to be, quote unquote, a self-realized, world-renowned teacher. Um, he didn't even ask more about my situation. He just proceeded to do these things. And I, in my 20-year-old, two-year-old, very ignorant about Hinduism because my family was not religious, I assumed that what he was saying and the teachings of Vedanta were the words of God. 
And I came to believe under that huge duress that I was indeed bad in the eyes of God at what I had done. So it twisted me internally. And I deeply internalized those, those messages and lived for years thereafter, thinking that I was bad, my feminine body and everything about my femininity, my passion, my desire, my choices, my desire for freedom, um, even music, which was what I was studying, um, was somehow not right. That even my desire for freedom, <laughs> let me put it that way. Um, and it was a complete 180 for me because I was, I mean, this is sort of the cult brainwashing experience where you're taken out of your environment, shut off contact from friends, your, your, your work, which was, I was a student. Uh, I was financially independent and thrust into a completely archaic primitive environment where I, it, it was the, the stress um, crumbled, made me crumble. And that is what trauma does. Trauma breaks a person's identity, it shatters us. And so what was whole and strong then breaks into pieces. It's like dropping a glass bowl. It, it breaks into pieces and one part doesn't know what the other is doing. Um, and I shut down. After the six weeks, I went into a shell. I was very, very withdrawn. I was obviously very depressed. And, you know, my family... And being in India, there's no there's no awareness about emotional health, emotional well-being. Um, uh, and I was there for a year. So after two years, they let me out. I was able to work, which I did. I taught in a school. And at that point, I just wanted to get away from my family. I wanted to become financially independent so I could leave because they were trying to get me to have an arranged marriage. So I enrolled in a software course and got a small job doing software. And I thought, even if I'm financially independent in India, at least let me just leave these people. Um, well, it turns out two years later, there was a proposal for somebody in the U.S. And so they gave me a ticket and, of course, passport and green card in hand. Um, but en route to my parents' house, instead of going to South Carolina, from, from New York airport, I went to a small town in Indiana and created a new life, which wasn't the best, um, but I was very, very traumatized and I didn't even know what trauma was. Um, I, was I had become afraid of the world. I had become afraid of life. And I couldn't do what I most loved, which was play the piano. And this is what trauma does. It disconnects us from our body, from our emotions. I couldn't feel. I was numb. So when I played, even though my fingers would move, I couldn't feel the beauty, the emotions, the passion that you need to be uh, a musician. So I lived for the next 15 years. I did marry an Indian man. Um, again, it was all... Under duress, I was very disconnected from myself. The marriage was emotionally abusive, but it was sort of safe. I would say semi-safe. It was a safer place than what I believe my family to be. Um, and 
over the years that just became untenable and eventually physically abusive. So that's when I questioned everything. I would go on these long walks because uh, I still, I had, you know, been practicing Vedanta. It's like, why is the feminine inferior? Why are women treated this way? Why in a country that has so many goddesses, why are we at the bottom of the ladder? And who are my parents if when my husband strangles me, says, stay in the marriage, that that's my spirituality? And what is this religion that's telling me that I'm less than a man? So I had these questions and I looked to nature, which I had always loved and grown up in as a child. And I started receiving these messages about joy and the beauty of, of women and femininity and that we are like trees, like flowers, like birds meant to bloom and flourish and thrive and sing the song that we're born to sing. Um, <clears throat> and it was a profound period because I actually then experienced Kali. She entered my life in a very powerful way. A presence was there, and I felt her ferocious strength. Um, and she gave me the courage to leave. So I left not only my marriage, but I knew I had to leave my family and my culture and the religion. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a break from everything and everyone, because my parents wanted me to get back, you know, just return to the marriage. That's all they knew. Um, but I just broke and enrolled in graduate school in San Francisco um, and started a whole new chapter of my life. Okay, I have to ask some uh, follow-up questions. So sure. maybe I start backwards. So you mentioned that instead of staying in California, you went to start a new life in Indiana. Um, that was the arranged marriage, was that? No, it was not. I had, <clears throat> I was going to leave, um, but I had, <clears throat> I had, my Indian boss was, had become a friend and he said, come, you know, I'll help you out when I get there. So he had got admission in Indiana. And so I, that was a place, it was a roof over my head and that's how I started. Um, but within, but within a couple of months, he wanted to get married. He wanted a green card and I was so shut down. I didn't really love him. I said, I agreed. And then I stayed in it because as an Indian woman, I believed I had to stay married for the rest of my life to the same person. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, you said that you were under house arrest um, for a couple of years. Did you ever think that it was going to end? I didn't know what the how it was going to end. I mean, I was. It was hard to describe this, my state. I was barely eating. I stayed in my room. I sat on my bed. I could hear the world passing by outside. People walking, talking, laughing, and I was numb. Um, to be shut down is to sort of switch into a lower gear where I was just surviving, you know, just going through the day, but it was just this monotonous, think about prisoners. It's like, it's just this monotonous, the hours pass, but I'm not 
it's, it's the body's way to survive. And in trauma, it's called freezing, where mm-hmm. the nervous system just clamps down because the pain. Like a defense mechanism. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so you are now in, in California. You are in grad school. Uh, what were you studying? Yeah, psychotherapy. I went to graduate school to become a psychotherapist. Great. So now you are studying psychotherapy. Um, what I want to rewind a little bit from that. What was the point at which you realized that you needed to, I, you know, you kind of described the, the, the realizations that you had um, and feeling Gali's energy. Uh, what was the turning point that made you actively leave that marriage? So it was a few years in, in becoming. We, my ex-husband moved a lot. Well, I moved with him. We moved almost 11 times in 12 years, three times between the India and the U.S., so there was no place to put on roots. And I was just tired. Um, in 2000, I had an ectopic pregnancy. And what that did was it burst the dam. So all my not feeling and just sort of living a mechanical life burst. And I was I just dropped into this well of grief. I couldn't stop crying. It wasn't, it wasn't losing the, the fetus was probably a very small percent of what I was grieving, everything I could feel in a way I hadn't been feeling for 15 years. Um, And I didn't know what to do with that. Um, In India, we were in Bangalore at the time, and there's no, I didn't know, I couldn't find any support. So I went online where I could connect with Western women uh, in the forums and groups. And then we subsequently, my ex-husband and I ended up moving to California for his company. Um, and yet again, it was each time it was like a plant being pulled out by the roots, the move, and each move got harder and harder. And there was something about when I landed in California, I had this vision of my ex-husband and I on a path and I would just set down my bundle and if he needed to move, I was willing to let him move on. That the final blow came when he, I was financially involved in his company again. <laughs> I didn't want to be, but I think as I didn't know better, so I was. Um, and I refused to sign some papers at some point because it meant my continuing to stay with the company. I wanted out. And at that point, he got so furious. We were in our living room. I was sitting on the floor, my back against the couch. He was sitting on a cane chair. He stood up, he lifted up the cane chair and the legs gashed the ceiling. And then he just threw himself at me and started and strangled me. His arms, his hands just really tight around my throat, strangling me. His full weight was on me. Um, I could feel my eyes roll up into my head and he finally let me go. And that was my breaking point. Um, I called my parents and they said, you need to stay. These things happen. Your marriage is your spirituality. And that time it was just, no, (laughs) what is wrong? Um, And I'd had also some employees in our company come up to me, American employees who told me that my ex-husband was emotionally abusive to them. That was the first time I heard the term emotional abuse. So I went online, looked it up, took a quiz, and it turns out I was. Um, so I went to the library, called a South Asian 
mental health organization for women, because even then I was still thinking this might apply just to American women, but does it apply to Indian women? And the counselor I spoke to said, no, that definitely I was being abused and had been for a very long time. So it was these realizations. And then I learned, I kept, as I kept reading, I learned, I, you know, I saw behaviors, learned about symptoms and realized that many things I'd experienced and thought about myself about being, you know, unworthy or not deserving or afraid or not able to have the self-esteem that I've knew deep down was in there, um, realized my dreams, followed through on my desires and goals was because of abuse. And there's so many, you know, I've given you a couple, but it goes even further back into childhood of sexual abuse. So at that point, as I read, that was my education. And if anything I could stress to people is please educate yourself about psychology because we can walk around for so much of our lives thinking something's wrong with us or that we're bad or that we're just not capable. But the truth is our experiences shape us so much. And whatever situation you're experiencing, wherever you are, there's always help available. Maybe it starts through a book, something online, a YouTube video, but so that awareness propelled me forward and I knew I just wanted to break from everything and psychology it was the first thing that sort of came, just flew into my head, become a therapist. I'd never been in therapy. Um, I went to the YWCA and they had free counseling for two, for six weeks or something. So I took that and joined a small group for women who'd been abused. So all of that gave me strength. All of that gave me, made me believe and realize that I was not a bad person that for what I had quote unquote done, um, which was what? Fall in love and have sex before marriage. Um, and that I could get help and heal. And so I threw myself into becoming both healing as well as becoming a therapist. Okay. So why okay um i have a couple of questions i'm just deciding which avenue to go down first let's start with your parents why do you think it was so important for them to make sure that you were molded into the daughter that they wanted you to be mm -hmm. and why do you think they took the means that they took to make sure that happened yeah so <clears throat> um my parents are educated my mother has a master's degree. My father has a master's degree. My father an was an engineer. He's obviously now retired. My mother was an economist, a journalist. So, and my, fa my family is very educated and in India was very progressive. Um, that was my image of my family. I've had my grandfather and uncle went abroad to study. So it's education was our religion. Um, what I did not know and which I've come to know later is about personality disorders, about mental health. And this was a learning for me. Um, so in India, there's this mix of, you can have be educated, but we're also locked into centuries worth of tradition. 
right? Um, I think they did what they did because they believed they needed to protect me, protect my virginity um, in the eyes of the larger culture, the larger family, so that I could get married, so that I could be the daughter that would fit in into the daughter mold that they knew or expected me to be. So they were coming from their beliefs, their perspectives, which is very understandable. Um, however, what I experienced was, I, I don't think it was normal. I think it was beyond uh, normal. It was, uh, and for somebody educated, it's, it's really hard to imagine that. So I've done a lot of thinking about it. So my mother has narcissistic personality disorder. And um, that is that was a learning for me. Um, a narcissist typically can only see the world from her perspective, his or her perspective. And um, there is no other. The other is only a reflection or uh, of use to to them. Um, so to value another for their own beingness is not, it's not a capacity a narcissist has. There's no capacity for empathy, um, for understanding another person. It's all about control. It's all about control. It's all about power. And um, a narcissist views their child as an extension of themselves. And this is kind of common in India. A lot of parents view their children as extensions of themselves. So there you can almost say the culture is sort of narcissistic in that way. Um, there's no boundaries. Um, there's, uh, there's, not a, there's not a connection with their own emotions. Usually there's disconnected. Narcissists disconnect from their own emotions, so they cannot imagine what another person is feeling. Uh, they themselves are disconnected from them all their own emotions. So they don't know what they're feeling. The emotional realm is, 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 is not available to them. They're usually in their heads. Um, and everything is very transactional or it's about things or about status or about how things seem on the surface, about appearances, but it doesn't go deeper than that. Um, and there isn't a capacity for love, for true love, for true caring, for true affection. Uh, the narcissist is separate from their heart. And it's very, it's tragic for a child. I mean, I was rejected as a child, as, as children of narcissists are. And I believed something was wrong with me. Like, why wasn't I being loved? But a narcissist is incapable of love. So this is the... The, the mental health piece. Um, a narcissistic parent is usually it's my way or the highway. And narcissistic mothers have a very competitive or jealous um, with, with other daughters. And there's always a golden child in the family and then there's a scapegoat. So my brother is a golden child. I'm the scapegoat. My father is what I would call an enabler. He, he didn't have the the strength, the ground to combat, to, to disagree with my mother. So he just went along. Um, you know, he provided, but he sort of handed over the parenting to her. 
So he was quite oblivious. And even when he did know, he was used by her um, as a tool for punishment. So, and there's, there's a whole range of narcissism. It's not just one way. There's, you know, a gradation from zero to a hundred. Um, and there, there's people who are mildly narcissistic and the people who are very narcissistic. But I think this was the psychological piece of what was going on. Um, and also, you know, sexuality and the purity culture. India has such a purity, puritanical <laughs> attitude towards sexuality that, um, you know, it's, it's, I think that's something all Indian women, not all, but I think most Indian women experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned that your brother was the golden child, right? Mm -hmm. How do you think that your mother's narcissistic personality disorder and your father's enabling tendencies affected how he turned out as a person? So the golden child, uh, typically, um, it's it's hard for the golden child to separate from the parent. Um, with a narcissist, the children of narcissists are so, they're just sort of sucked into seeing the world from her eyes and being who she wants them to be. I mean, it, it starts from in, in the womb. So these are deep conditionings. Um, I think it has been hard for him to fully separate, to fully be his own person. Um, and stand up against anything. He's he receives the privileges that it provides, that relationship provides, but I don't think he's his full own person. Yeah. So it reduces their self-esteem as well. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to talk about your journey, your healing journey. So why do you think before we get to that, why do you think the ectopic pregnancy in particular was such a huge turning point for you? Like why, why was it that that opened up the, the wells of, of grief for you? I think it was because I was, I was connected with my body. When I was taken back to India, the trauma disconnected me from feeling my body. So I was living numb and couldn't feel, but with, an, with, a, with a physical, and especially in the womb, which is a power center for women, it broke open what are all the doors that had been closed. Um, so it was a somatic, it was a physical experience that I had no control over with my conscious mind. Okay. And it was a good thing. I really look back and see it as a very, very good thing for me. Okay. Can you talk more about that? Because it opened me to feeling. Yes, I lost the fetus, but one, I wasn't even interested in having a child with my ex-husband. I was just, I was in the assembly line, so to speak, of, okay, I'm supposed to have a child. <laughs> Let me do this. Um, we need to feel. Because only when we feel, um, can we tune into who we are? Can we connect with who we are as individuals apart from everything else, apart from parents, from family, from relatives, from the mainstream, the meat, everything? And our feeling, our ability to feel ourselves is our truth. There is no one truth for all. 
There is no one truth for all women. There is no one truth for Indian women. There is no one truth for anyone. We are individuals. And this is the piece that India does has not gotten. It's it's much better now, but our emotions guide us. Our emotions teach us, okay, I want to do this. I don't want to do this. I dislike this. I love this. Um, and emotion, our emotions connect us to our soul. We are not products of our culture. We are souls in form. And each soul has a different experience of life and needs to have a different experience of life, regardless of the family, the culture, and so on, the religion. When we feel we are able to tune into, what do I want? What do I need? Does this feel good for me? Does this not feel good for me? And based on that, we can make choices and decisions. But by not feeling, we just go along with, we're like, wood floating on the river. We just kind of go along with where everybody else is going or, or I'm supposed to do this or everybody else is doing this. And, you know, I don't know any better. So even though it was very painful, it, it broke open the door that had closed really to my heart and my body. And the grief then led me to now I can feel, and once I felt, I could feel my anger, I could feel the outrage, I could feel the pain. Could, and then that, as that heals, then I could open into, this is what's good for me. This is what's right for me. Even if it goes against everything that my culture or my family tells me, I need to choose to set boundaries, or I need to choose myself, or I like this path. Um, and, and then that's when we can open up to joy and happiness and pleasure and playfulness. So I would like for you to talk a little bit about how you were able to reconnect then with your feminine power after everything that happened, um, after everything, after something pretty traumatic happened in your room in, in particular, um, and how you were able to connect with your feminine power again and use that to figure out who you are, find freedom, and what you want from this life? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it happened over many, many phases and stages um, since over the past 18 years. Um, first, just even, you know, as I said, when Kali came into my life, the power to lead, the power to choose myself was a very empowered act even though I was terrified. I didn't know what my life was looked like. I was terrified of being divorced. Um, and then beginning therapy. You know, therapy was, I was in therapy for several years to heal so much. And that was hugely healing. Learning about psychology, uh, you know, being open to a completely different perspective of myself. And what I had known and been given from my family and culture was hugely empowering. I could think in a different way and question very strongly. The other thing I opened to was reading about Tantra. Uh, I was, I still am. I've always been spiritual, not religious, but spiritual. And <clears throat> reading about Tantra, which is India's feminine wisdom. 
um, which truly, I'm not talking about so much Tantra in the West, which is entirely sexuality. In India, Shakta Tantra is the, the, the Tantra of Shakti, of the feminine power. And reading about that made me, was, gave me just the sense of there's so much in India that is feminine, that is powerful. My feminine body, it was, it, and both that and psychology affirmed my body, my emotions, my desires, my thoughts. And so over the years, um, I, beyond therapy, I engaged in other modalities of somatic healing, energy healing, various types of healing. I'm a healer. And so that's, that's my playground. So I explored, explored many, many types of healing. Um, and dance, dance was really important. Becoming embodied, my body led me to my feminine power. So, you know, we can be so much in our heads and but when you feel the power, when you feel your aliveness, when you feel the joy and desire and playfulness of your body, there is, is no shame, there is no fear, there is no guilt. So becoming embodied has been one of my greatest and still is a practice for me to connect with, with me, to connect with my womb, to connect with my vagina, to connect with my heart. And what truth, what wisdom is there for me. So I've learned to listen to myself um, more and more, and there's always more, but developing that has been, that's now the headlight that I use to, to see my way forward. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up Tantra. Uh, I, was, I was going to ask you what your relationship is with Indian culture these days, you know, you you face so much at the hands of the Indian patriarchy and on Indian soil, and as as a result of Indian, you know, expectations. Um, and so, I wanted to ask you about that. And the other thing I want to say is, I find it so interesting that uh, the way that you were able to move on from this ectopic pregnancy. This is something that many many women face. Unfortunately, it's not talked about much at all. Um, and it's something that women suffer with silently by themselves and they feel shameful about it. And often the reaction, I don't know about often, but a lot of times at least, uh, the, the reaction is my body betrayed me or the reaction is is guilt and shame that, or, or a feeling of a sense of failure because of a failed pregnancy. Um, and so I just wanted to say that it is... Um, it's very empowering to hear how you were able to take that and turn it into something else and transform that energy into something much more positive and healing for you. Thank you. Yeah. I think any situation can be healed, um, but it requires work and, and that's, that's part of it. Yeah. And as, as you've mentioned, it was definitely obviously a very long journey I do want to go back to my original question uh, mm -hmm. before I kind of detoured there uh, about your relationship with Indian culture mm -hmm. as it is now. Yeah. Um, well, I do have, you know, very, I have very both strong negative and positive um, feelings towards it. As I mentioned, I have deep respect and regard for 
or Tantra, I think those feminine masters really had tapped into true feminine wisdom. And this this is available. It's it's really sad that even in India, Tantra is so denigrated and outcast. Um, but again, it speaks to the right where the feminine is is dismissed. Um, I'm you know have tremendous anger about the oppression, the violence, the patriarchal treatment, uh, abuse of women. Um, all of that is. I'm just always filled with outrage of, of what's happening there. I'm very encouraged by the the new generation, this current generation who are so free and so, you know, very, very different from when I was their age. That's really, really lovely and heartening to, to witness and see and connect with. Um, so it's mixed. It's mixed. Um, my family is here. I don't, I haven't been to India for about six years, so I don't visit that often. Um, you can say I, I prefer to stay away at this time. <laughs> mm-hmm. How is your relationship with your family right now? It's, he, it's healed a great deal. When I left my marriage, I didn't speak to my, after I left my marriage, I didn't speak to my parents for 10 years. And that was a long time. I imagine I know for them and for me, uh, but I needed to do it. I needed to find who I was outside of their pressuring me because any contact was just pressure to conform, right? Um, So I needed to find my own power and strength. And once I healed, I, you know, we went through a whole process, but right now I I do speak with them. Um, I go visit them when I can. Um, it's, it's, it's more superficial, but we have a relationship. We, there are areas we don't talk about. We've talked as much as they're able to, we've talked about what happened with their treatment of me. Uh, and they have apologized. So I'm grateful for that. Um, I do know they love me in their way. Um, and they want me to be happy. And I think they now understand that they have a daughter who, they may never understand, um, and I appreciate that. Um, so it's it's fairly distant, but at least there's a connection. And yeah, and I've forgiven them. I've forgiven them, which was important. Why did you feel like you needed to forgive? Did you feel like you needed to forgive them? No, I didn't think I would. Okay, it just happened, and I think that's how forgiveness works. It, it cannot be a goal and it shouldn't be a goal. I think it's an act of grace because it comes from the heart, not the mind. It happened to me when I was in a retreat and I couldn't, and I've vacillated since then. I've gone back and forth still with the anger and, you know, how could they? And But right now I'm in a place of, I can see it from a much bigger perspective. Um, And I am at peace. I am free because to not forgive, although it was important to not forgive, it was very important to feel the anger and the outrage and hold that very strong boundary all those years. But at at some point in my healing journey, I wanted to let go of it all. 
of what happened. I wanted to be clear the trauma and forgiveness is the final, final gate to freedom. And it's, I think it's something our soul does. I don't think it's an item on a to do list. <laughs> okay. I think I kind of understand that, that forgiveness should not be a goal. It's not an item on a to-do list. I understand that. My question for you is, how can we forgive without the intent to forgive? You can definitely have the intention. Definitely. You can certainly have the intention, of course. Um, but what I want to guard people against is sometimes people will just gloss over. I've seen a lot of people, oh, it's okay, you know, oh, it's okay. But they don't really feel, it's important to feel all the underlying feelings because then that doesn't get felt, but it comes out in these other ways. Um, so to not bypass, to not override, um, you know, there's so much pressure to, to make everything okay, to make nice, right? To not do that, that when it comes to let it really come from the heart. That's what I would want people to know the difference about. So did you know that you had forgiven them when, was that maybe the final part of the healing process? Mm -hmm. So did, was it yeah. like you, you realized that there was just, that anger had kind of dissipated? Um, and of course you probably oscillate. I think you mentioned that. Maybe I, I ask you the question rather than answering it for you, but um, when did you know that you had forgiven them? So I was in Brazil at a spiritual healing center, and they have many things you can do. And one of the things is that they have a, this waterfall. It's not a big waterfall, but it's one you can stand under. And, you know, I had, of course, been asking for emotional healing. <clears throat> and... Um, I sort of even had these whispers of forgiveness sort of flitting through my mind. Um, so I was standing one, one time under the waterfall and I felt this slag, this rock on my heart just move away from my heart and it just opened to love. And that I just broke down. I just, I just broke down and it's that the, the the peace, the relief that forgiveness gave me was unimagined. I could not have imagined it. Um, and my experience was my heart is so much bigger than all, than the pain, than the anger. Um, it's as though, how can I say it? It's, it's as though in water, you might have, you know, a piece of something, let's say a piece of rock salt. Your, your heart is the bowl, the rock salt is the anger. And the rock of anger has to melt into the love of the heart because the heart can only love, the heart only knows love. And I had to open to that. And it was an extraordinarily beautiful experience. And you know, I went to my parents and just walked in the door and held them and cried my eyes out and just said, I, 
I forgive you. And it was just this washing away of the whole experience. And that's when I understood that trauma is a station. It's not the destination. It's a place we might encounter in our lives, but the train can move on to other places. And for me, letting go of it all had to include the forgiveness. And um, so even though I have gone back and forth, more and more I'm established in Love and I can and I can see and understand. Of course, with all the psychology, I can understand my parents' wounding. I can understand the patriarchal cultures. Like, yeah. Um, and although it's been extraordinarily painful, it's not to say I'm not. I still don't. Almost every day, think who would have been if. Um, I have the rest of my life to look forward to. You know, again and again, I keep hearing in my experiences that people really find healing when they start to connect with the physical, whether it's nature or their bodies. And so I just love your story of being in a waterfall um, in Brazil and, and being able to physically feel that, um, that, that rock sliding in your heart. It's a very apt description, I think, of what had physically happened um, and what had emotionally happened. So yeah, I just, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Healing is physical. Our bodies can let go. Our mind is a whole other thing, but when our bodies let go, that's, that's when it's, it's all the way in. Your cells have, <laughs> have done it. And that's, yeah. Your bodies you know? do hold pain. I don't think people yeah. know that um, your bodies do hold pain and they, they do um, hold emotional pain and they respond to it. Uh, so my next question for you as we approach the end of the hour is what would you, this is a very broad question, so you can choose how you want to answer this, or, or maybe it's just a portion of this that you want to answer. What advice you may have for, for women who either maybe went through the experience that you went through something similar and are trying to get out of it or are at the beginning of their healing journeys and how they may find themselves connecting with their feminine energy and power, how they can do that in a way that works for them. Yeah. Um, the first thing I would say is to grow your awareness, build awareness. Um, go to your local library or go, go online <clears throat> and read about, um, you know, whether it's emotional trauma or abuse or just basic psychology 101 you know what or even start working with a therapist um you know identifying okay my father is this and my mother is this because that informs you and it gives you a template with which to work to understand your family system so building a growing awareness is just the very very first step so read you know, listen to podcasts, you know, as much as you can to get that basic understanding um, so that you're not blaming yourself. That's, that's a lot of women blame themselves or we're so hard on ourselves. Um, it takes it off of you and it sort of puts a mirror, shines a light on the people around you. And so you can say, okay, you know, I have my stuff, but so do these too. Um, and then to to look around you wherever you are in your world at whatever is possible 
to connect, to connect and receive support. It may be a therapist, it may be a friend, it may be a group of women that you join, either in person or online. There's so much um, available. But connection with other sisters, with other women, is very, very healing. And we learn from each other. And um, to do that regularly, I think, is, is, is a wonderful thing to, to do. And then to go deeper, to really, when you feel, as and when you feel ready, to embark on your own healing journey, whatever that is. And healing is not, trauma is ubiquitous, it's everywhere. We all have it in some form or another. It's not just sexual abuse. Um, so to maybe you seek out a therapist or some other healing practitioner, whomever you resonate with, a modality you resonate with, on a long term, to commit, to give that to yourself. Um, it is an investment of time, of energy, and even of resources. But the, the gifts are priceless. Um, because when you're in that professional setting, when you're with someone doing the work, you, you will heal. Things, you change does happen. And it's a profound experience. Um, therapy, there's sometimes people think, oh, therapy means something's wrong with me. No, therapy means something's right with you and that you're, you're seeking to grow and develop yourself. Um, so to seek out support. Um, and then whatever power is for you to develop your gifts. What, what, what do you love? What do you love to do? What brings you joy? What makes you happy? to developing your gifts, um, regardless of financial remuneration. So this is not about having a job, not even making it a career, but to take the time to do what you love um, is very empowering. And to learn to listen to yourself, to choose yourself. Choosing ourselves is one of the most empowering things we can do. Where are you not choosing yourself? In which relationship are you not choosing yourself, right? Ask yourself these questions and see if you can make small changes. It doesn't have to be a big thing, but maybe taking half an hour once a week or an hour once a week to paint, to dance, to be in nature, to do whatever it is you love, to give that to yourself, to develop your connection with yourself. And the more you do that, it will feed you in a way that nothing else can. Um, and those are some small steps, some small ways to begin empowering yourself. I think that was perhaps the most comprehensive definition of healing that I have ever heard. So I really appreciate that. I think that people will really benefit from that. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, one last thing before we end, I would love for you to tell us uh, anything that you are working on right now or anything that is coming up from, from you or um, how we can connect with you and your content. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, so I am working on a book. I've written my memoir, which is my story, but I'm, my next book is, it's more of a self-help book to help that helps, that guides women to finding their voice, their power, their sexuality, uh, their heart and connect with the divine uh, within them and outside them. 
Um, and next year, I'm uh, this year I have not been teaching, but I typically lead groups and workshops. And so next year there will be more groups and teaching um, events that will be available. So people can just connect with me um, on my website or social media and um, or sign up for my newsletter and they, they can be informed that way. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. I will put links to everything. You know, you can send me those links after this. Um, I'll put links to everything in the episode description on Instagram and on our website. Thank you so much again for coming onto the show. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to say before we end this episode? No, I th first of all, it's been just so wonderful to talk with you. I love your questions. Um, they're just so insightful and thoughtful. And I really appreciate the time you've taken to, to, to make this happen and to think deeply about this, this issue. Um, I think you've asked me just about anything, but I just want, would want to leave with, um, you know, if people are still listening at this point, um, you know, you've been, I, you know, that I've been through something pretty rough. Um, and there's, yes, there's always rougher and there's maybe not so rough, but wherever you are, who, you know, whatever your situation is, um, there is always hope. Sometimes things can seem really dark and despairing, but sometimes it might just mean reaching out to someone or listening to a podcast. Um, so I just inviting people to do one small thing that would make you feel better today or this week. I think that that was beautifully said. Thank you so much. So that is the end of our episode. If you would like to reach out to Maitre, her contact info is in the episode description as well as the Instagram post. Facebook posts, the, the website, all of the social media things that you can think of, all of the platforms that we're on. You can find her anywhere from, from our page. So if you would like to reach out to us, you have comments or questions, you can do that on the Desi Condition at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at the Desi Condition, or you can tweet at us at TDC podcast underscore. You can find out more on tdcpodcast.com. And with that, I will conclude the episode. I hope you all enjoyed this. I hope you all learned something. I certainly learned so much from you. Uh, thank you again for being on the show. And I hope you're all staying safe and connecting with people and yourselves. And I hope you're making good choices. And I'll talk to you next time.